From Washington, I'm David Schultz, and this is Talking Tax. So we've inadvertently started a tradition here on this podcast. If you're a high-level official working on the OECD's two-pillar project to remake international taxes, and you step down, you have to come on here and give us an exit interview. The latest veteran of the international tax talks to leave the table and debrief us is Michael Plougen, who until recently was the Deputy Assistant Secretary for International Affairs at the Treasury Department. In this role, he was the chief negotiator on the Global Deal, which includes a reallocation of large multinational companies' residual profits, known as Pillar 1, and a 15% global minimum tax, known as Pillar 2. Plowgen came to our offices in Washington to speak with Bloomberg Tax and Accounting reporter Lauren Vela, and he started off by talking about the three red lines that the U.S. would not budge on in the negotiations, one of which was the taxing status of Puerto Rico. Yeah, it's pretty simple. It's because Puerto Rico is part of the United States. Uh, so that, that's been a, a key red line for the U.S. You know, from the beginning, you know, it's, it's something that, that we've been discussing with counterparts for, for quite a while. What is the mechanism or the fear there with Puerto Rico? Does it have to do specifically with the mechanics of Amount A? It's really about Puerto Rico's taxing rights, right? So in our bilateral tax treaties, we don't give up Puerto Rico's taxing rights. And basically the the idea with Amount A is the same, is that, that we're not going to give up Puerto Rico's taxing rights in a, in a multilateral convention, uh, especially because Puerto Rico has not been at the table, uh, right? Because they're part of the United States. They're not a, a separate jurisdiction that is part of the inclusive framework, unlike some of the other territories uh, who are at the table, who are members of the inclusive framework. Is this an issue that was brought up by other members of the inclusive framework that they wanted territories to be considered separately from m- major states or mainland um, states? Yeah, absolutely. So, so as I mentioned, there there are um, you know many other territories that are uh, members of the inclusive framework, and that the treatment of those territories is has been a, a, a topic of discussion in Amount A because it's a little bit complicated, right? Um, the the specific legal relationship between a territory and its you know home jurisdiction, whatever you want to you want to call it, differs. Uh, among jurisdictions. And so the the multilateral convention has to take all of those different legal frameworks into account. And so this has been an ongoing topic of conversation. And there are jurisdictions who want Puerto Rico to be treated as as not part of the United States for, for purposes of Mount A, similar to how some of the other territories are treated as not part of their, their home jurisdiction. What is the outcome if it's not included as part of the United States? Yeah, so that's that's so the way that amount A works is there's a, a new taxing right for market jurisdictions because they, we don't want to have double taxation. You have to have uh, elimination of double taxation, surrender, basically surrender of profits or taxing rights over profits uh, in order to offset that new taxing right in other jurisdictions. Um, and so if you treat Puerto Rico as separate from the United States, it could have a surrender obligation to, to surrender part of its taxing rights. And again, that's not something that we were uh, going to do uh, is surrender ta- uh, Puerto Rico's taxing rights under, under Amount A. So 
Anytime we talk about Pillar 1 and specifically Amount A, we've heard the criticisms, right? It's too complex. It doesn't do enough for developing countries. There's very little chance that it'll pass in the U.S. legislature. Do you think that there's a path to success for Amount A? And if so, what is that path? Uh, Yeah, so um, I think there is a path. Um, I think it's going to be really difficult. There, there was a, a statement that came out at the end of last year that updated the timeline to say we're, we're looking to finalize text by the end of March uh, to enable a signing by, by the end of June. That's not a lot of time. Uh, and, and there are uh, complicated uh, issues that need to be resolved. Uh, Treasury has been and, you know, as far as I know, is committed to resolving those open issues in order to be able to finalize the text if those red lines are met. This is this is how I put it to uh, my counterparts when I was was in the job, is that in order for uh, amount A pillar one to to work, it has to be a two sided deal, right? It, it can't just be the U.S. giving. It, it has to be uh, a deal that that delivers on uh, the things that the U.S. is trying to get out of the uh, the pillar one deal, in particular, certainty stability, um, getting rid of DSTs. And so if countries can coalesce around that, then there is a path to signature. They haven't coalesced around that yet, um, but it, but there is certainly a, a path to, to doing so. And, and just so we are clear that the three red lines were the Puerto Rico red line, the addressing of the withholding tax issue, and um, a robust, as both you and your colleagues have put it, amount B yeah. that needs to be included for the Treasury Department to sign amount A. Correct. Yeah, that's right. You know, those were the red lines before the public comments came in, right? And I, I think that the public comments, you know, identified uh, a, a number of, of concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think the the clearest one is the. Uh, issue of the definition of DSTs and the uh, commentary about the definition on DSTs. I I like that you brought up um, the consultation. Uh, It was opened in October and then it closed in December. Your colleague uh, or former colleague at Treasury, Chris Bellow, made it very clear uh, that when the U.S. government opened the amount A treaty for public consultation, it was not meant to indicate the U.S. was willing to renegotiate major parts of the deal. And I guess my question to you is, is there anything that the U.S. is willing to renegotiate on this treaty? Um, so so uh, the way I guess I would come at that, that question is, is I, I think Chris is exactly right. It's not realistic to expect that you know, the U.S. or anybody would be willing or able within the, the time frame that's, mm-hmm. that's on the table to renegotiate all these hundreds and hundreds of, of things that have been you know, fought over and, and compromised and, and that sort of thing. So I, I think it's really about um, identifying areas where either you know, the, the text does not do what it's supposed to do, right? So and, and the DST issue is, is, a, is probably an example of that. Um, it was also, uh, at least so, so in my mind, uh, again, just my personal view, is to try and identify from a from a stakeholder, a broader stakeholder perspective, are there additional red lines that need to be 
um, brought into the negotiations in order to have a path to success. You know, as we talked about earlier, bring the the agreement into the U.S. So uh, within the Pillar 1 sphere, we also have Amount B. It seems like there are still disagreements about fundamental parts of that Amount B consultation released in July. How close are countries to coming to a solution? <laughs> I, I should just uh, disclaim because I, I know there have been developments since I left um, and they're working very hard. So I, I don't know exactly where mm-hmm. things stand. But but from my perspective, uh, it's a really frustrating uh, issue because it's it's obviously a, a win-win or win-win-win. To have a robust amount B would you know, just take off the table a lot of the the cross-border tax disputes that, that we see. It would reduce the amount of resources that the IRS has to spend on transfer pricing disputes, uh, the amount of resources that taxpayers have to spend on transfer pricing disputes. Uh, it's something that has been very important to jurisdictions in Africa, uh, some of the jurisdictions in Latin America. It, it just... It, it seems like a no-brainer, and and so it's been been very frustrating to watch it play out or be part of it playing out, um, and, and not being able to to see things across the finish line before before I left. You know, I I think jurisdictions are some jurisdictions uh, are just concerned that um, they will lose money. Um, so let's move on to the other beast, which is pillar two. Uh, it's taken an effect in dozens of countries this year, including the whole EU bloc. The million-dollar question is, do you think the U.S. will ever adopt Pillar 2 legislation? Well, I mean, I hope so. Um, it will depend on a lot of things, uh, not least uh, the election this year uh, and, and, and what comes out of that. As as I've said in all different contexts th- throughout this process, the best answer for the U.S. is to adopt reforms that are consistent with with Pillar Two. Have you have you heard from stakeholders about whether or not they think that it's actually a good idea to adopt Pillar Two legislation? I have, uh, and I would say there is definitely a mixed view. You know, when, when you say stakeholders, I I, I think primarily the U.S. business community. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. There, there are uh, large parts of the U.S. business community that you know, continue uh, to, to fight Pillar 2. There are uh, some in the U.S. business community who support or would support um, adoption of Pillar 2 in the U.S. And then I'd, I'd say that there's a, a group of taxpayers that are maybe uh, I would describe as agnostic. And so, you know, if, if they can... You know, figure out a way to administer the the pillar two reforms in other countries without too much headache, then it maybe doesn't really matter that much sure, whether sure. the U.S. implements pillar two or not. Yeah. So, so I think there are a bunch of different voices. Yeah, that's interesting, and I I've heard the same for businesses and how they would be affected by certain parts of pillar one as well. Um, now I have a, cu- a couple more general questions for you. Are there things that you would have liked to get done in your two years at Treasury, but didn't? And that could be anything OECD-related or regulation-related or whatever, what have you. <laughs> How much time do we have? Uh, of course. Of course there are. Um, you know, on the, on the regulatory side, there are several projects that still need to 
that need to be done. And, and mm-hmm. that's that's always going to be the case, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, you're mm-hmm. ne- never going to be in a position where uh, after spending time uh, in government, you feel like you've accomplished everything that, sure. that you want to accomplish. So related to the OECD front, um, clearly I would have liked to have made more progress with with Canada with respect mm-hmm. to their DST mm-hmm. but you know lo- lots of things that sure, I would like sure, to sure sure I mean I had to, to see done. I had to ask it um where do you think the conversation around international tax policy and enforcement is headed in the coming years yeah um so I one thing that has has really struck me over the past especially year or so is the the movement that that we saw, it, particularly with the TCJA, from uh, sort of principles based tax law to uh, more of a you know formula and data driven uh, set of provisions? So I think that that really changes how taxpayers and policymakers have to think about uh, compliance, uh, think about the law, and 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 making policy. I also think. One of the things that we see is that the geopolitical power of emerging and developing economies is it just continues to increase, and their their preferences in in tax policy take on greater weight uh, because of that. Related to that is you know this is this is something that I've seen for the past at least uh, ten to fifteen years. Uh, is that ta- international tax has become much more politically relevant. You know, you, you see much more political involvement in um, the international tax space. You see the involvement of ministries of foreign affairs, not just uh, ministries of finance. That changes what direction tax policy is going to go. So, and I, and I think we're going to continue to see that. That was Michael Plowgen, former Deputy Assistant Secretary of the Treasury Department, speaking with Lauren Vela. And that's it for today's podcast. You can find Ups in the Minute news and the latest tax accounting developments at our website, news.bloombergtax.com. That website, once again, is news.bloombergtax.com. Today's Talking Tax was produced by myself, David Schultz. Vondana Mather is our editor from Washington. I'm David Schultz. Thanks for listening. In a global tax landscape that changes by the day, it's what you don't know that can leave you exposed. At Bloomberg Tax, we provide market-leading intelligence and practical applications to help tax professionals work smarter, faster, and more accurately. Our solutions provide the insights you need for game-changing outcomes. To revolutionize your performance in real time, the difference is Bloomberg Tax. Learn more at pro.bloombergtax.com.